0: This is The Film File, the film podcast for film geeks by film geeks. Take your paws off me, you damn dirty ape. You're tuned in to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Meakin. This
1: has has already been been a weird show, hasn't it? It It's
0: like the eighth (laughs) attempt to make this particular show. We we started (laughs) earlier. My internet completely dropped out. Don't know what happened there. Every time it went back up, just about to start again, dropped out. Um, Had to turn every single device off in the house. Nope, still nothing. Absolutely zilch. So then we started a couple of hours later, resigned ourselves to dinner, came back. And then I think mine's went blank. I know mine <laughs> certainly has.
1: I, I was all ready for the show two hours ago, and, and now I don't know what you I'm peaked. ready for. You peaked early. I've peaked, I've peaked early. That's the story of my life, really. <laughs> um, but <it's, laughs> I suppose it doesn't help that both of us have had quite a quite a busy week, haven't we?
0: It's been a heck of a week, um, starting for me with the q and A I I did with Martin Ware of Heaven 17 as part of the Off the Shelf uh, festival, which is if you uh, did attend any of the events they're all marvelous a fantastic um, a fantastic event finished on Sunday. Uh, I was going to go down for the last day, but far too tired because I played a couple of gigs I played Friday in Sheffield and Saturday in Birmingham and got back uh, ridiculously late, even with the time change back ridiculously late and didn't get enough sleep so I'm a little bit i'm hanging in
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and also on top of that, I had my booster for my COVID jab, and that knocked me for six. Absolutely knocked me out.
1: I've not had my booster yet. But yeah, you, you've you been busy that way. And whilst you were doing your q I was having another QA at the Light Cinema to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Poltergeist screening that we were showing.
0: And whom did you speak to?
1: Uh, Joe Housen, who's a horror writer, wrote written short stories and also writes reviews and features for horror journals he popped over from Manchester to come and sit and have a chat and it was great we just like we just basically sat at the front of the screen and had a good chat and to be fair I basically recited most of the stuff that we'd spoken about only two weeks earlier on this <laughs> very show you <Isn't> <laughs> preempted it it was perfect timing because when I'd never met Joe so I'd never conversed with him so it was like how does he want to go about this and when he turned up I was like how do you want to approach this if you've got stuff that you want to cover I went no let's just have a chat around the film It's was like fantastic because that's exactly what we do on my podcast and we did this two weeks ago so i've got me notes from there and we'll i'll just draw reference to elements and we'll discuss around had a really good chat really good evening when joe left he said he, he's really enjoyed it and he wants to do it again so might be extending a little invite out to come and like pick a film and join us on the show at some point
0: yeah let's get him in for a deep dive and uh yeah dealer's choice let him let him choose and we'll deep dive it that'd be great fun we need to yeah. have more guests. I always like it when we have guests.
1: Yeah, there'll be there'll be nice to have people mixing around. Everyone, maybe maybe not like politicians. I, mean, I don't know. Did you see this week? Halfway through the week, the whole political state of the UK was summed up by the trending topic on Twitter. I went onto Twitter, went into the trends, and it had under politics. O f f s.
0: Yep, about sums it up. I mean, there was the story about Liz Truss and the. Uh, the situation with being phone hacked, it just is a clown show that's not, not refusing to stop.
1: Don't say clown show to me. Clowns is a touchy subject at this point in time. I had a horrific night at work last night.
0: Oh, okay. You got indecently assaulted by a clown?
1: Uh, we've had guys coming in dressed up like in different costumes for horror things over the weekend. And they've been told that Andy has a phobia of clowns. And then I'm coming up the escalator to head back into the office, and there's a clown walking down the stairs, and it freaked me out.
0: Was the clown just minding his own business, going about his clowning sort of stuff?
1: Well, they were there to, like, jump out and surprise people and, like, you know, do <laughs> wish little they, fake scares, wish they would. which <laughs> could have been quite deadly if he had have tried that with me, because he'd end up with whatever was in my pocket would have been in his eyeball, and I'd have been running out of the building screaming. But I ended up having a panic attack in the office, which wasn't very nice. Oh, no. Thankfully... One of the supervisors went out and spoke to him and he said that he wasn't aware and like he changed his makeup and put a different costume on. Uh, But it just set me on edge for the rest of the night.
0: I've got one question, Andy, before you jump on. What did he change into if he'd brought a clown costume?
1: (laughs) Got rid of any of the colourful elements of his jacket and all that. So he had a long black jacket and he painted his face up in a school thing. So it was like a voodoo priest kind of look that he went for instead with like a top hat and feather coming out. So it worked a treat. He still had the big feet but I can cope with big feet on their own. But it's it's clowns. And this is the whole thing. is like people never take you seriously when you've got phobias until they see you reacting to a phobia. And I was, I was prop, almost catatonic for 10 minutes in the office.
0: Oh my goodness. I did not know this uh, side of you after all these years.
1: If I'm walking down the street on Halloween and someone's dressed as a clown, it's up to me to avoid that situation. And I can avoid it. I can be unnerved, but I can find ways around it. Any time in society, I can take steps to avoid it. But when you're the manager who's supposed to be running a shift in the building, and there's one walking round, it, it hit me in a hard way, and it's Wrong. the first time I've actually had a proper panic attack from it. Oh my goodness!
0: Yeah, I, I don't think people do take phobias. It's like when you you're afraid of spiders, and someone always insists on showing you a spider. Oh,
1: oh, they're just they've only got oh, they're just a little bit of cute things. Look at them! No, you've got a phobia. It it can properly knock them. My fear of clowns. I've been told by someone who used to do security um, in my old job that he did doors round Sheffield and he knew of one of the bouncers who was like six foot four he had a phobia of clowns which they only discovered on it was a student's like freshers week and what like all students go out get drunk have fun dress up things like that and one jumped out from around the corner dressed as a clown and this six foot four bloke just dropped to the ground and went unconscious (laughs) and when he when he came round his first words as has it gone yet and it just shows that, you know, it's a genuine thing. But people don't take phobias seriously. No. And it annoys me immensely because I always advise never have people dressing up as clowns in the building because it will really affect me. Well, now people have discovered exactly how much it will affect me. Right. they will have found out the hard way. So no clowns, please. And if you ever meet me in public, never show me pictures of clowns. Okay. You've, you've actually
0: <laughs> seem to have opened a door now for people to do that. So that's it. I'm
1: going to get. Poked. I'm going to get a Twitter feed filled with clown pictures now, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the other side of a screen. It's not real. It's like I could watch Stephen King's it. It's on right. the screen. It's not real. And if you're watching a horror, you're supposed to be kind of scared. But I know that it can't affect me. But when something's actually physically with me, that's when it really starts to make me break out into cold sweat. And yeah, it was. It was a weird experience. I almost did the whole fight or like, fight or flight response, and I actually had it going around my brain. Just grab your coat and get out. Wow! It's, uh, so that was an interesting night last well, night. That's an
0: insight I, I never knew. Mm. I, I can't really beat that part. I've had what bands COVID jab. COVID jab was a uh, was a, was a knockout. Boy, I was I was pretty sick for over twenty four hours before I actually started to feel better. Uh, and apparently, that's a it's a double dose with this new strain could be, mm. uh, which is not showing up on people's COVID tests when they do them.
1: Great. Which is fun. So. Just what we want. Another yeah. ambush strain.
0: Anyway, we don't want to dwell on clowns, COVID clowns shots. Clowns and COVID. Now, there would be a scary movie combination. The COVID
1: clown. <laughs> I'm surprised it's not been done yet. Yeah, Troma would have done that in the heyday. Or a silent. But anyway,
0: let's move on. What do we got in this week's film
1: file? Well,
0: of course... It's an action-packed show, as always. We'll be giving you the news in the box office. We'll be doing a deep dive into not just one, not just four, not just six movies. We're going to giving you a deep dive into the Planet of the Apes series. From Charlton Heston right through to present-day
1: Woody Harrelson. And he's going to be reviewing uh, Barbarian that landed on UK cinemas this past week. And two streaming choices this week, Raymond and Ray, which landed on Apple Plus, And Wendell and Wild, which is the new stop-motion animation from director of Nightmare Before Christmas, Henry Selick.
0: But before any of that, we've got the news. So at the box office, Black Adam started pretty strong, but did it take a big dive in its second week? Or is it proving to be superhero stable and soaring off into the horizon?
1: So it's a time of drop offs for Black Adam. Whilst it still retains the top spot in the US, it has dropped off 59%. It took 27.5 million over this past weekend. Ticket to Paradise was in second place with 9.9 million. Pray for the Devil, the new low budget horror, 7.2 million taken this weekend. Smile, 5.4 million, puts it in fourth place. And Halloween still hasn't ended. As it took 4.1 million to land in fifth place. Black Adam worldwide so far has taken 250 million, which, given it had a budget of around 190 million, it's not looking very promising for it to go into profit at this rate. Meanwhile, in the UK, Black Adam stayed at number one and only had a 39% drop off, which wasn't too bad, but it's still not great for a film that desperately needs to make up a huge deficit in takings. La La Crocodile is in second place. It took another 1.4 million in the UK this weekend. Banshees of Inner Shirin holding in there and showing that sometimes smaller films can deliver 1.26 million this weekend. Pray for the Devil is in fourth place with 768,000. And non-film Music of the Spheres live broadcast from Buenos Aires, The Concert, 741,000. Other new release this week of Bros which underperformed in the US, hasn't found an audience in the UK either. It's in 12th place this week, only taking 195,000. But overall, whilst Black Adam holds the top spot, it's not done it in any spectacular way. And I think it's pretty safe to say that once Black Panther arrives next week, in just under two weeks, Black Adam will be disappearing without a trace.
0: So with that kind of news around uh, Black Adam, which is not looking very positive, probably the positive is that they finally found their Kevin. Yep, DC have now brought into place their creative lead, or in this case, creative
1: leads. Yes, uh, Peter Safran, who's been a producer on quite a few DC and Warner's related properties of recent years. And James Gunn. Yep, you know, him. Uh, Now, the people who are going to be heading up the DC studios, both of them report directly to Zaslav and will work closely with Michael DeLuca and Pamela Abdi and will direct and produce their own projects respectively as well as overseeing everything. They will not be involved with Todd Phillips' Joker sequel, however, because that's a completely different tone and that's being considered completely separately. But this is for the rest of the DC content. Uh, The deal that they've signed is for four years in this position. So hopefully we'll start to see some consistency over this four years.
0: So yeah, they've been aiming to find their equivalent of Marvel's Kevin Feige. And we reported for a little while that Dan Lin was going to take that role, but that fell through. And I think, in my humble opinion, they've landed on the perfect choice.
1: Yeah, Gunn has always been a very creator supportive person. He's one of the people who, like, has said that the Iya cut should have been released because if it is finished, why not release it and let a director's original vision be seen to the world rather than the hack job that was done? He's always been supportive of. He's been supportive of Zack Snyder. Yeah, you know, he, he's always like supported. Like, it's his creative vision. It's the interference that messes with things. He feels like the kind of guy who, you know, I've seen some people who are like, we don't want all the DC properties feeling like a James Gunn film. They won't because that's not who James Gunn is as a person. He will use each creator's ideas to be shown the way that creator wants it be, to be done whilst keeping a look on the overall feel and the overall linking between them and the consistency. Um, I think it's great. He, he knows his comic book history. He's demonstrated that multiple times with um, the range of obscure characters that he delves into, for want of a better term.
0: Well, the ones he named checked on Peacemaker for a start.
1: Yeah, he's, he's someone who's really well immersed in it. And then Saffron, like I say, he's been involved in production on a variety of Warner Brothers and DC projects. He's, he's kind of like the person who's already that established role anyway. So Gunn is there as the fan, the understanding of the comics aspect. Saffron is there as the producer. I think they could make an interesting combination. It is amusing, though, that the Snyder Cult.
0: <laughs> I was waiting for you to mention it.
1: They tried to cancel James Gunn. Oh, did they? They they wanted him to be they wanted him to be ditched by Warner's because he was coming in with this Suicide Squad, which uh, they should have done a proper sequel to Aya's Suicide Squad, and rah, and they tried to boycott. His suicide squad film and then when it didn't perform well at the box office they were all cheering and like "Hey, we've won we've won we've won so Snyder cultists out there how did that all work out for you now that James Gunn is actually in charge of your property and your, fa- your famous sack is not coming back. No nope, not coming back.
0: Um, I want to point out as well that there was, uh, uh, it was Twitter, so it could be all over the place, that uh, Marvel were unhappy with Gunn moving over to DC, and that seems to be not uh, a thing at all. Both Gunn and Kevin Feige have reported that they're seriously just happy for each other. And uh, yeah. I think Kevin Feige, oh, no, actually James Gunn said something along the lines of uh, a dollar made for Marvel and a dollar made for DC doesn't knock each other out. It It, it yeah. all helps. Uh, along the line so yeah there's that mutual respect you know just it's only fans it's only fans who, who bring up these barriers and and culture wars between creators it's not like that in the real world
1: the whole like marvel aren't happy came simply because feige made a jokey comment about how betrayed he'd been by james gunn leaving marvel I, he was joking. The rest of, it's, take, it's taking one part of what he said out of context. When you read the whole thing and he says, no, I, I love James. I, I'm really pleased with him. And he extrapolated around it to say, you know, this is a great thing to happen. And like, he can't wait to see what DC starts to bring out under James Gunn's vision. But no, you know, clickbaiters like to do a long article where all the information is in that 17th paragraph after a load of junk before it. And the headline just says, Feige isn't happy. And that's all that people read. And this is the problem that we've highlighted a lot of times. Research, people. Research. It's all you have to do. At the same time as all this, Henry Cavill has referred to his return as Superman as this. there is such a bright future ahead for the character and I'm so excited to tell a story with an enormously joyful Superman and that has rubbed a lot of the Snyder cults up the wrong way.
0: Oh, was that, was that, but it doesn't take an awful lot, but yeah, what did they say this time?
1: Uh, well, they feel that it's basically dismissive towards all the arc that Zack Snyder gave him because he's now saying he can't wait to play an enormously joyful Superman. He's clearly like having a stab at Zack, blah, 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 blah. And so some of the people who were campaigning for Henry Cavill to come back as Superman have now turned on him because they're so petty and petulant. Meanwhile, another half of the Snyder cult are moving their own goalposts again.
0: I'll get what they're doing.
1: And they're turning around and saying, well, Zack always always said that the next film would see the more positive Superman. Really? Because only six months ago you were saying that the next film was going to be this dark um, nightmare vision where Superman goes around killing everyone. So I'm not sure that that's a joyful Superman. Oh, you've moved your goalposts because you can't accept that you keep getting this wrong. <laughs> I'm, I'm loving the Snyder cult of self-destructing at the moment, and it's great. They're splitting off into like 15 different factions and all turning on each other. It, it was going to happen eventually because none of them know what they actually want. All that they know is that just little Zack Snyder fanboys but they don't know why they like Zack Snyder so much. It's a bit like
0: Brexit. Talking of James Gunn, did you see the trailer for the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special?
1: Oh, yes, I did. Doesn't that look great? And who doesn't like a bit of bacon?
0: Yes, Drax kidnapping (laughs) Kevin Bacon seemed to be the the heart of the story. And uh, I'm I'm liking these little uh, uh, one-off Marvel uh, movies. And we talked about the potential Silver Surfer one coming soon. Uh, Talking of Henry Cavill... Um, And this may fan the flames of his return as Superman, but uh, he's giving up his role in The Witcher.
1: Yeah, he's getting replaced by Liam Hemsworth after the next season. Whether it's going to be a completely just recast and continue the story, or whether there's going to be a reason for the recasting aside from Cavill's probably a busy man, I don't know. But A lot of the fans of The Witcher have now started sulking and decided they're not even going to give it a shot.
0: Okay, it's not the first time a leaked character has been replaced.
1: No. I mean, considering that most of these people are the same people who were saying that they should have recast Black Panther after the loss of Chadwick Boseman, it kind of makes you wonder at what point do you not want things recast and what point are you happy with them? Just accept it. Give it a chance. You might actually love it. But yeah, Cavill's going to be busy because his return to DC with Superman, but also he's going to be busy with Guy Ritchie's new World War II espionage action thriller, The Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare.
0: Okay, I don't know about that one.
1: Uh, this is a Jeff, Jerry Bruckheimer production. Cavill and Eliza Gonzalez are the leads in it. Shooting is slated to begin in January, and it's inspired by real events. It charts a secret World War II combat organisation that was created by Winston Churchill and James Bond scribe Ian Fleming. The clandestine squad's unconventional and entirely ungentlemanly fighting techniques against the Nazis helped change the course of the war and in part gave birth to the modern Black Ops unit. Cavill's going to play the lead with the organisation. Gonzalez will play a military sniper with extraordinary abilities. And it boasts a a range of colourful characters and it's intended as a potential franchise launcher because everything is these days. It'll be a trilogy. I like the whole drawn upon something real, but obviously it'll be given the Guy Ritchie flair which I'm fine with. Let's see how it play- plays out. I like Guy Ritchie. He doesn't always hit the mark, but I always go back to see what he does next.
0: I think you're a bigger fan uh, a bigger fan than I am, if, in all honesty.
1: Quickly just mentioning back to DC. It's no longer the DCEU as well. It's now just DCU. I guess they've run out of ease. Uh, the Green Lantern series for HBO Max is has been scrapped and is now starting afresh from the initial concept stage again. Uh, this is the one that Greg Berlanti was set to executive produce that was to focus on Guy Gardner and Alan Scott, which would have been played by Finn Whitrock and Jeremy Irvine and was going to be the most expensive DC Comics-inspired TV series to date. But it's all been disregarded, thrown out the window, and showrunner Seth Graeme Smith has exited the series after completing scripts for a full season. He basically, you could have seen this coming, he's looked at the landscape around him as things were getting chopped, things were getting cut, and thought, I'm getting out while the going's good, and jump ship.
0: And now apparently they're building the series around the Jon Stewart character. uh, Yes. instead, Which always kind of irked me a little bit, because I always thought that's where they should have gone with the the Green Lantern movie, because Jon Stewart was a much more recognisable character due to being in the Justice League cartoon series. Uh, for several years, that they, they could have started with Jon Stewart as a, opposed to Al Jordan. But then there would have been fans going, well, Al Jordan was always the first Green Lantern, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. So, But I always thought Jon Stewart was a much more popular character.
1: It'll be interesting to see how this gets developed and <laughs> whether it actually comes to the screen. Oh, and final news on DC, Batman 2 won't be arriving any time before 2025. So uh, don't hold your breath just yet on a sequel. I promise. Meanwhile, over at the other big studio powerhouse, Disney, they finally decided that they've got enough to work with and have no plans for any major, any more major acquisitions. I think there's anything else they can buy. I mean, they've just bought Doctor Who, haven't they?
0: Yeah, that was that was my next news, but now, go for it.
1: <laughs> well, it all kind of ties in together today, doesn't it? Everything, all the news tends to have come from different sources, and it all just kind of hodgepodges into one. Along with buying the Doctor Doctor Who, which to extrapolate around. This doesn't mean that Disney will be showing Doctor Who in the UK. It is still a BBC production. The British Broadcasting Corporation are still the overall lords of it. It just means that in international territories, it goes on to Disney Plus and they get some of that lucrative Disney money to touch up and polish it to make it look a bit more cinematic. As a win-win. I'm quite excited for it because as much as a huge fan of Doctor Who I am and, you know, We've grown up with it and we, we kind of accept the cheesy nature of the special effects at times. But inside, we've all thought at times, I'd love this to look better than what it does. Mm. And the Disney money can help them do it. Disney can have some creative say in ideas for the show. But BBC have the final ruling on all creation and editorial decisions. So whilst Disney might suggest, is there a chance of doing that, chance of doing that, it's up to BBC to decide whether or not they want to do it. So it's still going to have that distinctly British feel because that's the key thing that they want it to have. They don't want it to suddenly be, this feels American. They want it to still feel like a very British show. Very exciting. Very exciting yep. times for us Huvians. But Chapek has been speaking at the Wall Street Journal Tech Live this week and has suggested that they intend for all their future projects to come from the wealth of properties that they now already own. We have the best creative teams, the best brands and franchises in the world. We're quite happy to have the output level across our channels without having to be a buyer in the open marketplace. Our plan is to have all our content creation self contained. I mean, they do own Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilm, Fox, Hulu, and ESPN. So I'm pretty sure they've got <laughs> where enough to, keep else them going to go for with He also replied to the recent criticisms, well, past years or so, where Disney is too woke. Um, his response the world is a rich, diverse place, and we want our content to reflect that. That's good from a commercial standpoint as well because you appeal to the largest possible base. We want Disney to stand for bringing people together. I mean, why he even bothered responding to the criticism of being too woke, I don't know. People who use woke to disparage something are just under this strange impression that it somehow covers up their bigotry if they use that word instead. Just admit you're racist, misogynistic, transphobic, homophobic, or whatever, and move on with your life and don't don't start throwing the woke word around. Nicely said. <laughs> That's me soapbox rant for today.
0: Yeah, you allowed one. we allowed one every show.
1: Also with Disney... Have you heard about the WandaVision spin-off series, Vision Quest?
0: I have. I have. I didn't see that coming. I should have, I suppose, but I didn't see it
1: coming. Yeah, the, the way that WandaVision left, it, left off, we should have really expected this before Agatha's um, spin-off show, because it left with Vision, White Vision, going off to basically discover himself. And then we kind of forgot about it. And so as soon as this news broke this week, the, well, it's still speculated news. It's not being confirmed news but it's come from some reliable sources. Apparently, the series is opening a writer's room next week, and it, it's going to follow The Vision, Paul Bettany reprising his role, trying to regain his memory and humanity following the events of WandaVision. And there's reportedly a possibility for Wanda Maximov, Elizabeth Olson, to pop up in it. Jack Schaefer is overseeing the whole project. And yeah, I'm, I'm there for it. I want to see Vision rediscover himself or evolve, basically. Yeah, and...
0: and... There's, there's plenty of room. I mean, there have been comics which have explored the inner life of, of Vision. And yeah, it's, it's too much of an interesting character to just leave by the sidelines. But let's be honest, we say we didn't see this coming, but you know how Marvel works. They've been planning this for, for an entire generation.
1: Yeah. And also, word is coming out that Doctor Doom won't be the main villain of the Fantastic Four movie. Well, duh. It's going to be Galactus. We, we've, we already kind of knew this with the Silver Surfer news that, we had, that I gave out last week. Doctor Doom doesn't need to be the main villain. Doctor Doom should be a side villain. Doctor Doom yes. should be someone in the background over the first couple of films, slowly building up his reputation, occasionally causing problems. But he's a more interesting character than just a origin story bad guy, as we saw demonstrated in both attempts at doing him. Yeah. Fantastic Four so far.
0: So there are rumours we don't know, though word has been good on Wakanda Forever, that Doctor Doom will make an appearance. Now, that is only based from what I know, the storyline that they're sort of adapting. Doctor Doom was responsible for not killing T'Challa in the comics, but severely injuring him.
1: Well, we'll find out in not, not that long, a little over a week by the time this is. Yeah. Wow. Can't believe it's already upon us. Meanwhile, over on the grubby side of Marvel, i.e. Sony, Kelly Marcel, who penned the second Venom film, someone wrote that film, uh, will direct the upcoming third instalment of the adaptation of the Venom character. Yes, uh, Circus did one film and has jumped, leaving the writer, I, I, I think it's a tenuous use of the word writer for someone who wrote this these films. But, you know, is going to be directing it. Marcel's worked closely with Tom Hardy since 2008 uh, Bronson. She was one of several writers on the original Venom before penning Let There Be Carnage on her own. And she's got to pen the script, make her directorial debut on this third film, which hails from a story by herself and Hardy. Oh, I'm really, really, I'm really <laughs> struggling. You're not again. feeling this, are you? I,
0: I, I, Kelly Marcel's a good, good writer I mean, um, I, I don't know whether it's the restrictions on Sony What they're saying Or whether it's just becoming too in-house
1: I think that it's Tom Hardy
0: Yeah, I, I, I think it could be all those things I mean, I've still not got round to carnage And uh, I don't think I will
1: We know that on the first film Tom Hardy was responsible for some of the worst creative elements of there By, you know, things like he, him sitting in a lobster tank was because he walked on set and went, oh, you do know I've got to sit in that at some point. And oh, quickly, let's write that into the script. Tom Hardy likes it. And then on the second film, he had a lot of creative input on the story ideas. And I just don't think he's uh, very creative. I mean, we've heard the dodgy voice accents that he does in every film. He's got no creation.
0: He's <laughs> clearly not your Bond.
1: I want, to, I want to be able to understand what Bond says. I don't want shaken, not stirred. I still
0: love, actually, how they use the voice in uh, the Harley Quinn series,
1: <laughs>
0: which makes me smile every, every time that, that Bane appears. Um, I've got a bit of news. We mentioned Black Adam. And uh, we didn't mention that Aldis Hodge, uh, because we'll get round to the uh, Quantumania trailer in a second, is to play the latest iteration of Alec Cross. However, James Patterson's detective character uh, who's been brought to the cinema many times is now coming in for a new series.
1: Yes, the character has been seen on screen by Morgan Freeman um, in Kiss the Girls and Along Came a Spider, and Tyler Perry took on the role in 2012's Alex Cross. The book series has run to 29 Cross novels to date. Uh, This series is going to be for Paramount Television Studios and Skydance Television Production. Um, Ben Watkins, who gave gave us Hand of God, is serving as showrunner. For those who've never, never watched any of the Alex Cross stuff or read it, it's basically a detective and forensic psychologist uniquely capable of digging into the minds of killers and victims in order to identify and catch them. They are great, intriguing novels and they've adapted well so far. And Aldis Hodge is a, a really great choice. He's a really good actor.
0: Which segues, for me, into the trailer for Quantumania.
1: The fanboy in me got very, very excited <laughs> at small little split second glimpses of a variety of things that i can't quite be sure but I'm hoping that I've seen things that I wanted to see it looks great it looks yeah. fun and I'm loving the look yeah we saw we see kang in a few various guises briefly in that trailer yeah I can't wait that trailer looks absolutely splendid
0: it does it looks great it's uh it's taken the series in another direction and uh, clearly they're building up on the kang character to see where that goes yeah it looked great it looked a lot of a lot of fun
1: a few little quick bits of news uh, tobin bell is going to be returning as john kramer aka jigsaw for the next saw movie for the five people who cared about that franchise <laughs> unless there's a bizarre twist i can only assume that this is going to be in flashback because the character has been dead for most of the films set for release october next year this will be the 10th film 10 films in the saw franchise how many how many of them have you actually seen
0: uh, I've seen the first one, and it's, well not, it's not my it's not my cup of tea at all. I, I don't like I don't like torture in any kind of film. It's just the one thing that that turns me off. I like my horror to be supernatural. That's my perfect horror. But torture, just uh, you know, it was the same with the Eli Roth stuff. You no, know, I'm out. I'm always out.
1: We're, we're entering a season of long films as well. We know that Wakanda Forever is clocking in at two hours and 41, which is kind of what you expect from like the big spectacle Marvel ones. I know that they've shrunk the last few films down to about two hours, but they felt like they've suffered as a result. Yeah. This should hopefully get a chance to play out quite nicely. Damien Chazelle's Babylon is clocking in at 188 minutes. Wow. And beating that by two minutes is Avatar Way of Water. Three hours and 10 minutes runtime. It's almost half an hour longer than the first film was.
0: It's funny, I was uh, having a conversation earlier with uh, a producer friend of mine who uh, was, was talking about Avatar. He'd seen the, there's a new trailer drop, hasn't there? Yes. And he was saying that, you know, with all the, all the improvements on CGI characters, and he, and he cited Guardians of the Galaxy, for instance, and uh, he said, how come Avatar still doesn't look as though it's moved forward after all this time? And and I think they've got a point, and we, we've we talked about this, Avatar's got to do something really, really interesting to find a new audience that are now going to be awed in the same way that we were back yes. then. So, But as you said many times, Andy, and, and I wholeheartedly agree, if anyone's going to pull it out of the bag, it's got to be James Cameron.
1: But to be fair, at the end of the reissue that they did of Avatar a few weeks ago, there was a clip of a scene from Avatar Way of Water and the water sequence elements look amazing. Oh, I'm sure they will. I popped on a pair of 3D glasses in the 3D version of it, and it looks absolutely stunning. It, it It's taken the 3D technology even deeper in visual clarity. It looked absolutely fantastic. So I will be watching it in 3D when it comes out, despite the fact I'm not a fan of 3D. I feel that you need to see this one to see what technical, technological achievements Cameron has done. Yeah. Bullet Train and tennis actor Aaron Taylor-Johnson is going to join Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt for The Fall Guy, a film adaptation of the the great 1980s adventure series (laughs) that I used to tune into. Still can't believe that's happening. I I was a huge fan of it as a kid and I can't wait to see this. I mean, this is David Leach, who's always delivered on entertainment. Bullet Train was absolutely fantastic and he's clearly found a little muse in Aaron Taylor-Johnson because he wants to link him into it. And it's possible that in future years we might see an update with a dysfunctional family of Malcolm in the Middle.
0: Oh, really? I liked Malcolm in the Middle. Of course, it brought to the, to the screen and, and became heavily beloved
1: was the great Brian Cranston. Yes. Uh, well, Frankie Muniz has been in an interview this week and he suggested that a TV series is potentially in the pipeline. In his words, I would love to know what the family's up to. I know Brian Cranston is really into the idea and he's kind of heading up, writing the script and getting everything rolling. So there might be something. I'd be down for it 100%. We'll see what happens. So it's Cranston himself, apparently, who is getting the ball rolling on wanting to get this, at least a pilot done. And we've seen a few other shows come back in recent years. I mean, Roseanne came back as the Connors. We we know that we're getting a new season of Frasier next year. Um, So all of these old shows are coming back. And it's always been one of those things with sitcoms that have run for so long that when it stops years later, you think, I wonder where those characters would be right now. And Malcolm in the Middle is one of those shows that I'd love to know what that dysfunctional mob are up to at this point in time. Just round off the news with, let's just hop back to James Cameron, who's upset some people this week as well. Oh no, how? He's he's basically riled comic book geekdom with um, his, his thoughts on comic book movies. When I look at these big spectacular films, I'm looking at you, Marvel and DC. It doesn't matter how old the characters are, they all act like they're in college. They have relationships. But really, they don't. They never hang up their spares because of their kids. The things that really ground us and give us power, love, and a purpose, those characters don't experience it. And I think that's not the way to make movies. Now, I get what he's trying to say here. And I do agree that, you know, you need to have grounded characters. You need, they need to have relationships. You need to have that element to care for the plight of these characters, for them to have something to lose. But he's clearly not watched or read much Marvel or DC. Yeah, Because I'm not going to rant and rave, but there's a plethora of characters that we could throw out. Captain America at the end of Endgame. Tony end Endgame. In fact, everyone who grew over the films that they were in. Peter Parker has always been his relationship with his family, Aunt May, and his close friends. Clearly, James Cameron is just nitpicking. You say. He's nitpicking. But what I will say is that when heroic characters hang up their spurs for their family, it doesn't always quite work out for them anyway, does it, Mr. Cameron? who came up with the great idea of having Sarah Connor no longer be afraid for the future, only for a Terminator to then kill John in front of her at the start of Dark Fate. So how did that work out for your hero, Cameron? How did all that work out for your hero? Sent her right back to being the single-focused hunter that she was anyway.
0: (laughs) Okay, moving on. Is that it for the news?
1: (laughs) And that's about it. (laughs)
0: That's the news. If you like what Andy and I are on about and you're not a subscriber, then we insist that you do so. All you have to do head over to your favourite podcast platform, hit the subscription button and join The Film File. And every week you'll get your episode of The Film File delivered straight to you. And if that's not enough, you can do all these other things to connect with
1: us. You can head on over to Twitter and you can follow us at Film File UK. Get involved in the Sunday night movie talk on Sunday questions. We love to hear opinions. You can contact us directly via email, podcast at filmfile.uk thoughts suggestions top lists what have been your top films of this past year because we will be talking about the end of year review in only a matter of a month and a half basically a month and a half
0: you said that makes it nearly christmas
1: follow us on other social media platforms just search for film file and you'll find us on there you'll be informed of whenever there's any regular content drops and also when there's some bonus features go out So, there's plenty of ways to get in touch with us, engage with us, and share your opinions with us. And now it's time for
0: this week's Deep Dive. This week's Deep Dive is not one film, it's a whole franchise that started, well, if you want to be technical, back in 1963. But we'll start in 1968 with the very first Planet of the Apes movie. We're going to take you on a quest of the Planet of the Apes. 20th Century Fox wants you to go ape. Now, the triumphant return of a revolution in the art of science-fiction filmmaking. The classic
1: Saga of the Apes. Two great civilizations in epic
0: confrontation. The prize, possession of a universe gone wild. This will be the
1: end of human civilization! And the world will belong to a planet of apes! And that day is upon you now! These are the most popular and successful films of their kind ever conceived. The classic saga of the apes.
0: The Planet of the Apes franchise has started off with a novel from Pierre Boulet, uh, the man responsible for Bridge Over the River Kwai. The franchise has consisted of several films, books, a television series, comics, uh, an animated series. Uh, It's one of the most well-known science fiction franchises, the longest running of all science fiction franchises. It began way back in 1968 with the original Planet of the Apes that starred Roddy McDowell, Charlton Heston, and is considered uh, an absolute classic, certainly on this side of the film file. And I've got to be honest, Planet of the Apes is in my all-time, top 20. I have watched uh, and re-watched the uh, original franchise time and time again and adore them. Uh, I think they were a case of dwindling returns. I think they started incredibly strongly and, and sort of petered out, but my love for the original Planet of the Apes, which was a critical and commercial hit, uh, I think is just absolutely a stunning film with one of the best endings ever there. I said it.
1: I I mean, it's a fair comment. I mean, the the original, the story was originally fleshed out by Rod Serling and you can feel the Rod Serling Twilight Zone style twist ending is the biggest influence that he had on there. I, I revisited the whole lot of the Planet of the Apes franchise recently and every time I go back to Planet of the Apes, I'm always convinced before I watch it, it's not going to stand the test of time anymore and I'll start to see the flaws in it. But each time, I still find myself completely caught up. Heston's marvellous.
0: He overacts all the way through, but he is absolutely an amazing screen presence on this. Uh, and, and a lot of what the, what he delivers in his dialogue is actual monologues, because yes. he, he, he's not communicating to other people. I mean, for those who don't know the story, an astronaut crew crash land on what appears to be a strange planet in the very distant future. Although the planet initially appears desolate, uh, the surviving crew members stumble upon a society which is dominated by apes, which have evolved with human-like intelligence and speech, and while human beings are mute creatures that wear animal furs. Uh, and it's clear that the film is is a, an, an allegory. And as, as you said, the original script by the great Rod Serling, he who gave us The Twilight Zone. It's very clever with some very black humour in it, which I noticed watching it the last Ooh. time.
1: The true stars of the film, though, are the apes. Uh, which, yes, it's actors in costumes because they couldn't really train apes to do all this. But unlike the clav- uh, unlike the Trevor Slattery comment in
0: Shang Chi about Planet of the Apes, <laughs> which um, just came to mind. Sorry, Andy, interrupted.
1: <laughs> uh, but the true the true stars are the pairing of Zira and Cornelius, played by Kim Hunter and Robin McDowell. Who clearly, the true star is actually John Chambers. Who. Yes came up with the costume effect and made prosthetic masks that allowed enough expression from the eyes and from the facial movements to really make you believe in the characters and Kim Hunter and Roddy McDowell are the two who really give it their all and everything is conveyed through like eye twitches and like little nuzzles of the nose and things like that and they make them believable. You look at it at times and go, yeah, it's just a cheap monkey suit. But then you start to believe and care for those two characters. Um, Hunter and McDowell stayed around for a few films. McDowell briefly left the franchise due to uh, scheduling conflicts on one of the films coming up, but then came back to it and stuck with it right through the whole run, basically.
0: And the TV series. And it's worth pointing out, uh, as I said, you've got to look at this movie with historical eyes, but back in 1968... This was seen as absolutely groundbreaking prosthetic makeup. The like had never been seen before. It was in fact award-winning Ooh. prosthetic makeup. And uh, there's something in the in the characters that that makes you care about them, whether that's the performances coming through or, or just the, the absolutely iconic look of the Apes. And uh, and still, for me, despite the technology in, that went on further into the series, it, that it is still my favorite look of the Apes. To be honest,
1: yeah. Well, I think as the series progressed, those various budget cuts to keep them cheaper. The prosthetics was one of the things that became it became a bit more just one simple component mask and less facial expression as it went on, which kind of cheapens the series as it goes through. But this first film had a serious Cold War slant in there. There was that twist ending referring to how mankind had obliterated itself. They'd finally done it. The classic shot of Heston falling to his knees in absolute frustration. the realization that he's still on earth and um it's a decimated earth that mankind didn't really deserve
0: which is uh, which is one of the greatest endings of all time because it just fades to black and mm. all you hear is the, the the sea lapping on the shore and it's incredibly haunting and i remember the first time i saw it being blown away absolutely blown away by it and i, and I knew the ending um because i you know i was far too young when planet of the apes came out but my parents went to see it I, i've got a a memory of my parents going to see it and getting them to tell me all about it because I was such a sci-fi nut, even at that tiny age. You know, it, it's 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 a, it's a fabulous film. As I said, a lot of dark humour, an, an allegory that runs through it, analogies, as you said, to the Cold War, to the roles of where we are in society. Uh, it, it's, it's just a brilliant piece of filmmaking.
1: It was a su- success, which, as we know in studios, success means what can we get from this? So a second film was swiftly put into production. Heston wasn't interested in getting involved, but agreed to have a small part in Beneath the Planners of the Apes, only if his character gets killed off, and he donated all of his fee to charity. The film was hastily written, had to bring in a new astronaut into the fray, Brent, played by James Franciscus, which basically results in the first 20 minutes are basically a retread of everything that Charlton Heston's character had already gone through because they had to have another character encounter the ape society, go, oh no, mankind is hunted by these people, go running. And that's when it falls into subterranean humans worshipping the atomic bomb. David Watson replaced McDowell in this film because McDowell's off filming other things. And he does okay, but I just don't think he gives it enough energy. And the film just felt cheap. It lacked direction. It tries to tackle strong themes again, but completely misses the ball and everything. It feels more like a bad episode of a TV series than a film.
0: I've got more love for it than that. I've got a lot of love for Beneath the Planet of the Apes. I don't know why. I think, it, I think it, you're absolutely right. It's a film of two halves. I think once we get into the underground city and we, and we meet the mutants, I think that it takes a much darker turn than the first half of the film. Uh, And that's when it becomes very, very interesting for me. And I I say, I've I've got a lot of love for it. Uh, Out of all the sequels, I think it's my favourite sequel. I know Rod Serling was consulted, but none of his ideas were used. The original title was going to be called, uh, uh, at one point, uh, Planet of the Humans, then Planet of the Men. And there were many, many different ideas that were kicked around. Uh, I've seen some of the original scripts, and there were some interesting elements. Um, including a half-human, half-ape child. But I don't dislike it. I I don't dislike it. I have some love for it. And again, it's got a pretty good ending. Uh, Whether you like the rest of the film, that ending kind of comes out of nowhere.
1: It's kind of a definitive, well, that's the end of that ending. But it wasn't, was it? No, as we move
0: into escape from the Planet of the Apes.
1: Now, whereas you've got love and you, you think that, Beneath is the, like one of the strongest of the sequels. Escape is the one that I've got the love for. Now, it, this might be because this was the one that was on TV quite frequently when I was growing up. And so I latched onto it. I love the like the blast at the end of the previous film catapults Zera and Cornelius into modern, ta- modern I say modern day, into 1970s modern day, where they interact with the te- technological age of mankind. Much like Star Trek 4, This is a film that has fun with the people out of time aspect, but it's much more than that surface level. Whilst it has got jokey moments, there's a lot more going on in it. And on the recent rewatch that I've done, I noticed that how it tackles race issues, political corruption, media manipulation, political assassinations, everything's in the mix. And I think it really tackles them really well underneath this quite light entertainment up until the last 15 minutes when it becomes quite dark with another pretty good ending. It's one thing that the Plants of the Apes series always managed to do. It always managed to have an ending that makes you go, ooh.
0: Yes. I mean, they all pull out those, uh, those twist endings. Yeah, I don't, I don't dislike it. it. It's not my favourite. I, I mean, the, we'll, we'll, as we move through, I'll tell you which is my, my least favourite. I like what it starts to set up, which is this sort of cyclical time travel element to it. It doesn't quite make sense how they managed to get the rocket ship out of the river <laughs> And learn to fly when they are, even though they are the superior beings they've never seen a spaceship before. and that's always bothered me how they, how they manage to do that. once it's there, as you you're absolutely right, it, it does some very, very interesting elements to it.
1: It finishes by setting up where the next set of films will go as we lose Zera and Cornelius, but their child is taken by Ricardo Montalban's character. I love seeing Ricardo Montalban in anything who sneaks this, I mean, the final shot is of the small chimp behind a cage starting to say, mama, mama, mama. And, and it's one of the worst shots on film ever because it's just a forwards and backwards loop of an ape going, ah, mm, ah, mm, ah mm. Awful shot. But it's the whole thing of like, this is the start of the Planet of the Apes. This is the first of the actual apes that will start to talk. It's time is going to repeat itself.
0: We moved into to Conquest uh, of the Planet yes. of the Apes with the character of Caesar introduced which of course is is the first film in 2010's reboot series Rise of the Planet Apes. This is this is what they could have done if they had the budget, folks.
1: Yep. I I've got some some serious love for Conquest.
0: Yeah, me too. This is where I'm back here.
1: We, we see a society that has become of humans who have become so afraid of the apes rising up, after all the media attention that was on Zera and Cornelius and showcasing them, and like Zera's drunken admission that humans were primitives from her time and apes were in control, And it's basically made mankind afraid of apes, and so they've domesticated all apes around the world and turned a lot of the more intelligent ones into slaves. And they are create, like, trying to sub- suppress and subdue. And this is pure race issues. This is pure. There's there's apartheid issues being tackled in here. There's racism, slavery. And it leads to an uprising of the apes to break their chains, basically. McDowell, yes, his character was killed off in the previous film, but that never keeps a good actor down because he plays his own son in this film. And again, he just brings so much into it. The effects budget is starting to impact at this point. The design of the cities that it's in is great but the costume effects there's too many apes and yep. the budget is stretched thin but mcdowell he sells it with his eyes he always does with his eyes so even though the rest of the face doesn't have the twitches and the mannerisms you're bought into the character again because he's comfortable in this kind of role the same way that in this modern day andy circus behind any cg cgi you can tell it's andy circus because he delivers mcdowell did exactly that back then behind a the costume
0: uh, absolutely right um He's a completely different character than Cornelius. He's a a force to be reckoned with. This is an interesting film which came out in the US as there was a time of civil unrest, uh, especially race-based unrest. And this kind of is an allegory, again, of of what was going on in America and uh, apparently was uh, seen as a a, a bit of a call to arms for certain members of of, uh, the viewing public on it. It's an angry film, and it, and it feels kind of very relevant. And even though there's a lot of, uh, uh, as you said, budget constraints, a lot of the masks don't work, the idea of revolution happening in, in the US was an agenda at that particular point, and I think it, it serves into that. And it's a, it's a very clever, it's a bleak film. Um, I know it went through some heavy cutting because it was originally even much more bleak than the theatrical version that we got. But it really now builds into this element that uh, we are building to the planet of the apes.
1: As the film leaves off, it suggests that maybe apes are going to rise and take control, but Caesar doesn't want to completely take control. And then we get to battle for the planet of the apes, which the production budget stripped back so much. And the film suffers seriously as a result. I think there's some interesting themes. Again, this is one thing that the Planet of the Apes series is good at. It plays with themes. And there are some good themes within battle. Because now we see a, a future society, a very primitive future society, living in like the wilderness, where apes and humans are trying to live together, ruled by Caesar, who's hoping to keep the peace. But the radiation-scarred humans keeping tensions high with attacks. And it starts to grow a prejudice within the ape ranks you know, the racial message is a key theme. The idea of people turning against a whole race because of the actions of a few is one that has relevance even today. You know, whenever people start talking about like, you know, anti-Islam, Islam stuff, it's like, well, you know, Islamic terrorists, it's like not everyone's a terrorist. And that's what this is playing on. This is playing on the themes of like, you cannot persecute a whole species or a whole race or a whole doctrination because of the actions of a small few. It's a film that It kind of ends with a hopeful message for the future of humanity and apes, but with a lingering worry that it's all soon going to descend to the society that we saw in the first film anyway. And there's that final shot of the statue of Caesar with the one tear going down. You don't know whether it's a tear of joy or whether it's supposed to be a tear of sorrow because he knows what's going to be coming. The problem is all of these nice messages are buried in a film that was desperately, desperately weakly funded. Yeah,
0: it's it's incredibly uh, under budget. Um, you expect more from a, a film titled *Planet of the Apes*. It's a film that feels as though it needs more scope, but it, that's all lost behind some some pretty primitive-looking battle sequences with not many extras, and um, <laughs> the masks look pretty awful. It's it is it's a last gasp of yeah. an end of a series, and, and it uh, it was simply there to, uh, it's it's a financial exercise, let's wring more money out of, uh, of the hands of the, the fans rather than say anything, it just feels perfunctionary, which is a shame it's the first film that I saw out of the Planet of the Apes series, interestingly enough I thought it was a lot of fun when I saw it when I was about 10 years old <laughs> but going back to it, it, it never gets a, it never gets a screening anymore
1: Now, I think what I was first introduced to Planes of the Apes via, was What Came Next, which was the TV series. 14 episodes before it got cancelled, which were set after the events of battle, but kind of before the timeline of the first film. And it demonstrates, when when you watch the TV series, after watching all the films, you realise that all the optimism of that final film was misplaced as history was doomed to repeat itself. It was watching the TV series that made me realise what Planes of the Apes was. And that got me interested in watching the films.
0: Yeah, I I saw the series before I saw any of the movies. So the series had a similar setup uh, initially uh, with two astronauts played by Ron Harper and James Norton who passed through a time warp to the future where apes uh, are humans. Uh, This time humans can still speak, but the apes are the superior species. Uh, Roddy McDowell returns to the franchise as galen a lovable chimpanzee who joins the astronauts and um the orangutans uh, are trying to again uh, capture them and the gorillas are basically trying to enforce the law and put them down you know what when you when you're 10 or 12 it was the yeah. greatest series ever made oh, it was the bee's knees mate <laughs> looking back on it it is poor episodic tv apart from one episode in which the James Norton character of mm. uh, Burke ends up in an underground subway uh, decimated And when they find out sort of the truth.
1: In the same way that the Logan's Run TV series of the 70s Seemed great when you were young, but when you rewatch it now, it's like, oh, it's just the A team with a different slant. <laughs> all shows from the seventies and eighties who had an, which had an episodic format all followed this kind of format. It's not great. The animated series played a bit more with themes. I mean, it did like Cold War and Vietnam allegories throughout the thirteen episodes of that. But the TV series ambitious for its time, but not really held up well. They have reedited ten of the episodes of the TV series, into five TV movies. So you can buy a box set with a a set of films with the most ludicrous of titles ever.
0: I think I've seen them. The Liberty and Pursuit on the Planet of the Apes. (laughs) Forgotten City of the Planet of the Apes. (laughs) Treachery and Greed on the Planet of the Apes.
1: More more and more, these were just basically the death knell of the Planet of the Apes franchise. At least that is until the early 2000s.
0: Yeah, so we'd got an Animator series Andy mentioned, which was, was kind of interesting, but very, very cheap, very low budget, but, but some interesting ideas in it. There were uh, many, many uh, ideas for returning to the planet of the Apes. Now, there's a good title. Uh, that all went into uh, development hell. Uh, some good ideas. Uh, there was one point that, that Taylor would have a descendant, Duke, who was going to launch a Spartacus-like uprising against the Apes. Oliver Stone was involved in one project, uh, who brought in Terry Hayes' script writer for a a script entitled Return of the Apes. Uh, Philip Noyce was involved at one point. There were so many, until after James Cameron eventually passed with uh, a film that was going to connect him with Arnold Schwarzenegger again, uh, which went in a very different direction, we got Tim Burton to return to the Planet of the Apes.
1: Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes. Much loved. (laughs) <laughs> it's one that is severely derided and I, I think while some of it is deserved I don't think it's the terrible film that many say, the yeah. rewatch of it that I had recently, Wahlberg is wooden yes, he's very wooden and that twist ending makes no sense and is ridiculous, maybe if we had got a sequel, it might have explained it a bit more and given like the backstory as to how that world came about, but as it stands, it was like it was trying to put on a forced twist ending for the sake of going, ah, you didn't see that coming. Well, no, Tim, we didn't because it's nonsense. Uh, but the ape makeup by Rick Baker, the effects, I mean, Rick Baker, of course, it's great effect work, but he created absolutely fantastic prosthetics and couple that with the movements and agility that is much more ape-like than we've previously seen. You've got cast members like Helena Bonham Carter, Tim Roth, Paul Giamatti, and the late, great Michael Clark Duncan, who all give it the everything behind them and make the characters believable. And boy, it looks great. It does. When it finally picks up its pace, it's a cracking film for the back half of it. Wahlberg is just the weak element in this whole thing. Absolutely. I totally agree. He was too early in his career to be able to hold a central role in a film.
0: Yeah. I mean, he plays uh, Leo Davidson, another astronaut, accidentally travels through a wormhole to a distant planet where talking apes enslave humans. He leads a human's revolt and upends ape civilization by discovering that the apes evolved from the normal Earth primates who uh, had accompanied him on his mission. So it didn't play out like the original Planet of the Apes. The first half is the weakest part of the film. Uh, It all moves far too quickly and is Burdened by Tim Burton's sort of jokey sense of what's going on, but the second half picks up really, really well, and especially as you said, Tim Roth, who is excellent as uh, the human-hating chimpanzee General Thade, and uh, mm. uh, who steals the film. It's it's a patchy film, but there are there are bits of it that, that I really, really do like, and and that is mainly the portrayal of the apes themselves and the fantastic makeup you know, which takes the ideas that, that were done way back in the early films and brings them right up to date, and they stand the test of time. The film wasn't the disappointing box office that everyone seems to think it is. It took about $362 no, worldwide.
1: It profited. It definitely made profit. And they were talking about making a follow-up. It's just that Tim Burton himself didn't have a great experience making the film and so didn't want to have anything to do with a sequel. And it was the critical response, more than anything, that was People the just final the nail film. in the coffin. And that put the studio off pursuing it any further, which is kind of a good thing, because if it had have continued Tim Burton's one, I don't think we'd have ever got the more recent trilogy.
0: Yep, starting in 2011 with Rise of the Planet of the Apes. And this is a kind of reboot, remake of Conquest for the Planet of the Apes.
1: Yep, it's set in our modern society. It's set at the start of the the apes gaining intelligence through laboratory experiments and one particular ape who starts to grow intelligent and says his first word. This film, given to us by Rupert Wyatt, sees Andy Serkis as Caesar behind at Circus's famous mocap imagery and like i said before circus behind cgi always delivers a fantastic performance and puts everything in and the character of caesar on film you know that it's a cgi creation over a mocap body but that doesn't stop you believing yeah. that that is real it is so well done it is so finely acted it is so powerful when he rises up to say his first word of no when he's getting beaten by the animal handler. And he's like, rises up, grabs hold of the the baton and goes, no! The whole audience that I watched it with all gasped at the same time. It was like, we all sucked the air out of the room and then passed out. Um, (laughs) It was that powerful a moment. And to get that from a CGI character, that even when you rewatch it now, I mean, this is a film from 11 years ago, and it still looks visually superb
0: i mean some of the uh, some of the eight cgi character work almost makes you believe that it's uh, that it's prosthetics it's that good uh, and the interesting thing is how it developed across the other two films because uh, mm. as, as technology improved on it by the time we got to the to the third film that effect was just remarkable so much so that you just believed in it in every single way you as to quote, Trevor Lattery, how did they get the apes to ride horses like that? Uh, <laughs> it's absolutely, absolutely phenomenal. So we got Rise of the Planet of the Apes, uh, and then we got a sequel, because the film did remarkably well in 2014, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. And, and this was, again, um, influenced a little bit, can we say, by Battle for the Planet of the Apes, the Battle of the Planet of the Apes that we, that we never got. And yep. we get a new director, in the form of Matt Reeves, which is a shame, because I think Rupert Wyatt did a, a, a fantastic job on it, but it was, was replaced due to scheduling issues. And it's set 10 years after Rise, and it establishes that the simian flu, uh, a side effect of the drug that enhances the apes, makes them intelligent, has killed most of the humans. Uh, and Caesar's now struggling to maintain peace within his own community, drawn into, um, into violence with uh, nearby human survivors, and again, Wet has provided
1: amazing
0: special effects work, and we get a, a complex movie in a way that well, you wouldn't have expected the the film to go in a, in this sort of direction.
1: Yeah, it's got a great cast, particularly again on the ape side, but you've also got characters such as Gary Oldman's character, who it, it's one of those like characters that is kind of a villain, but not f- not for the wrong reasons you kind of understand exactly why this last desperate outpost of humanity is acting the certain way that it does. But the the true villainy comes from within the apes ranks itself, as some apes want to finally eradicate humanity and provoke more of a war, while Caesar just wants to keep peace. He wants everyone to survive, everyone to go on. It looks great again, and again, you know, apes rising horses. You can't beat Cobra on a horse with t- two machine guns going crazy nuts. It's just a cracking film from start to finish. And it's a rare occasion of a second film in a trilogy being better than the first. It improves upon the first film. It doesn't slow down at any point. It, it just keeps momentum throughout. And you just find yourself caught up in it for the whole runtime right up until the end. Every ape on screen is believable as a character, and there's a lot of them, a lot of them. You thought there was a load on the first film, on the Golden Gate Bridge sequence. You haven't seen anything until you've seen the apes go to war in this this one. Huge amount of effects work, but every ape has its own personality, its own mannerisms, its own way of walking, that you, you don't get confused as to who's which one. You know instantly, as soon as the scene starts up, that's Caesar, that's Colbert, you know exactly who's everyone, because all of the apes have believable characters.
0: And that, again, was a huge success, which led to the third part of this particular trilogy, and everyone was back for war with the Planet of the Apes. Uh, Andy Serkis returned as Caesar, uh, Woody Harrelson joined the cast as uh, Colonel McCulloch, um, Steve Zahn made an impressive appearance as Bad Ape, and We got Matt Reeves returning this time with script writing duties. And we got a very different Planet of the Apes.
1: A very personal journey kind of film. It was Caesar after his wife has been killed in front of him by Harrelson's Colonel, setting off initially wanting to kill the Colonel and growing a hatred for humanity. But when they pick up an orphaned girl along the way, it starts to make him reflect on what. This is the last gasp of humanity that is fighting out and striking out. And it it takes a journey of the soul. It's a marvellous film. It's a very grim film as well. I mean, it needs Steve Zahn's Bad Ape character in there, because without that character in there, this would have been a very, very heavy film. But Bad Ape brings just the right level of humour without it feeling forced in. I love the character of Bad Ape. I love him. (laughs) He, he brings some heart to it as well because you actually sympathise so much with what he's been through as a laboratory experiment ape. That everything that he says, however stupid it might be, it's kind of the result of what he's been through. It's such a dark ending on this one.
0: It is. I I've got to be honest. Initially, I was slightly disappointed with uh, with this film. It was on the second viewing that it that it hit me as to what was going on. The the more thematically and doesn't do quite what the title. Suggests that you are getting that sort of uh, remake of *Battle for the Planet of the Apes*. You, what you're getting is is something that is constructed that has a very clear and individual idea. Uh, I, mean, I mean, put aside the inventive filmmaking, put aside the the, the effects, put aside Andy Serkis's fabulous performance as as Caesar. Uh, it's an absolutely wondrous and Oscar. Mm-hmm. Oscar-worthy performance, but there's something in this that that is that resonates on a on a very very different level. It's not an action movie, which is is what I went in thinking it was. There's a, a lot more, and it's a lot deeper. It's a journey into the soul. It's a war for the soul, as opposed to um, a a war a war for the planet. But uh, it is marvelous, and and we thought we were done with that. We thought Andy Circus uh, uh, with his farewell in this one, we wouldn't be getting. Any more apes film, but how wrong we were to even consider this because it was another huge success.
1: Yep, and so as we've reported in the news in previous weeks, Kingdom of the Plans of the Apes will be on its way. It's gone into production already, and uh, we've got that to look forward to. I'm so looking forward to it. There is that little bit of trepidation that maybe we've had the perfect trilogy, we don't want to risk it, but I can't help it. I'm always going to be there for more apes. Um, if anything, with a more recent trilogy, I'd say that they were all named the wrong way around. The first film should have been Dawn of the Plans of the Apes. The second yeah. film should have been War for the Plans of the Apes. And the third film should have been Rise of the Plants of the yeah, Apes. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Because <laughs> each of those names would fit the themes of each of those films better. But, hey, we got what we got and we got a perfect trilogy. We got a trilogy that just grew stronger and stronger over the whole lot of it to make you really care about a load of monkeys.
0: And I'm so glad that West Ball is continuing the world after the world building uh, and Caesar's legacy for Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, that they're not just a, a, a brand new reboot, they're staying within that world. And I'm, I'm really pleased with that. Uh, if you want to find the Planet of the Apes series, Andy, what can we do?
1: Disney Plus is where you want to be, isn't it? Because they're all Fox properties yeah. and they're all sat there on Disney Plus for you to watch through the whole lot from start to finish. You can can go and buy the box set on Blu-ray or DVD. But if you haven't got the box set, if you've got Disney Plus, there you go.
0: If you do get the Blu-ray box set, which I'd highly recommend because there's a lot of documentaries on it, there's a fantastic uh, making of the Planet of the Apes uh, all about the original film, which is a real insight into the Planet of the Apes uh, formation. But as Andy said, you can get them all on Disney Plus. We'll have another deep dive for you next week. And now it's time for some reviews. So Andy, you've, uh, you've done the Lord's work this week and you've been to the cinema with one film that I am absolutely gagging to see but sadly couldn't make it, and that's Barbarian. Hello?
1: Directed by Zach Kreger Barbarian is set at an Airbnb where, at the start of the film, Tess Marshall, played by Georgina Campbell, finds that the house is already occupied by Bill Skarsgård's Keith, who, it appears, was booked in that same night. Unnerved by the situation, the lack of other options lead her to agree to share with Keith until they can sort things out the next day. But things are not all they seem at this Airbnb, and pretty soon, events take a dark turn. That's pretty much all I'm going to say about the film's story, without giving up the sharp and unique manner in which it plays out. Suffice to say, the film didn't exactly go how I expected it to on multiple occasions, and it kept me on my toes, chilled, and on occasion, laughing from start to finish. The opening section, drawing on all the red flags that make you suspect something disturbing is about to happen, is masterfully played out before the film goes all out to toy with expectations and flip things around so much it leaves you spinning. The direction is solid, making the location feel tight and claustrophobic, with the surrounding area being a wasteland of destroyed homes, giving it an extra unnerving edge. But a flashback to decades previous takes on a pastel-shaded suburbia approach, really capturing the time in an offsetting and equally disturbing manner. Craig gets the most out out of his environments, including the tense, dark, underbelly corridors carved out beneath the house. When the horror elements hit, there's just the right amount of blood and gore to make you squirm, without dwelling too much on it, ensuring that it's the unnerving nature of the story and the atmosphere that's the true horror here. Barbarian is a film that homages many that we've already seen before, but it plays against types so well that it still feels fresh and unique. And it's certainly a film that I intend to revisit again.
0: And then you have got Raymond and Ray, which I know very little about.
1: Our father is dead. His last wish was that his sons
0: attend his funeral. Three has to go. He's dead. He'll never know. You're a very tender man, you know that?
1: Okay, your father's last will.
0: It was his wish that you dig his grave. What? The old man was always screwing with us. But forgiveness is good. I want to show you the casket that your father reselected. The cheapest man who ever lived. Hi. How did you know our father? We were lovers by way. What was he like as a father? The worst. Like a weight on my chest. Forgiveness is good.
1: Hey guys, this is my son, Simon, Raymond and Ray, your brothers. Two half-brothers, Raymond and Ray, played by Ewan McGregor and Ethan Hawke, come together after the death of their estranged father. Finding out that his final dying wish was for them to dig his grave, the pair must first come to terms with the abuse their father doled out during their lives and the men they've become today because of, and indeed, despite their father's behaviour. As expected from an Apple production, there's a sheen of quality to this offering, especially in the performances of the two leads who really inhabit the parts and make them feel real. In the early act, as the pair meet for the first time in a while and start to reconnect, with memories of their father coming out from two very different perspectives, the film does a good job of engaging with the audience and allowing you to care. The very balanced chemistry Hawke and McGregor share certainly lends wealth to the film. However, as the film progresses, it all starts to lose a bit of focus. What could have been a great film about grief and loss and how familial bonds still matter even when the family was dysfunctional starts to fall apart during the second act with moments that feel a little off-kilter to the core essence of the film and the final act works to undo all the good work the film had done leading up to that point. The result is a well-acted and almost engaging film that lacks some focus and direction. Not a bad film by any stretch. The two leads more than compensate for many of the film's underservings, but one that feels very disposable and forgettable when it should have been one that would have left you thinking over the themes. righty, and then and then finally, Wendell and Wild, which is the stop motion animation from Henry Selick,
0: which being Henry Selick and liking all of his previous work, I'm excited to see. I know what you are, Cad.
1: You're a hell maiden. But it has to be our secret. That's how I can protect you.
0: Protect me from what? Your demons. Whoa-ho-ho-ho. I'm having a vision! <laughs> a green-headed girl. <laughs> she seems so real. Greetings! We are the magician morticians, the Artif of the Afterlife.
1: So, as your masters, we order you to turn around and, uh... (sighs) Stop-motion animator Henry Selleck returns to directing for the first time since 2009's Coraline with this deliciously dark tale about a pair of demon brothers, Wendell and Wilde, who want to break free of the bonds that tie them to their balding father and create their own amusement park for departed souls. To do this, they seek to be summoned to the mortal realm via an orphaned punk rocking teen named Kat, who's been branded as a hell maiden. As offbeat and gleefully grim as you would expect from Selick, he adapts the story from his own unpublished book with the help of Jordan Peele, who alongside Keegan Michael Key also pops up in the title roles. The scattershot nature of the tale is a tad convoluted at times, but never stops being thoroughly entertaining, which helps to cover up the occasional crack in the adventure. All of this is, of course, aided by the slick animation, and indeed the character designs which are fashioned around the voice cast themselves. Key and Peel are immediately recognisable, even without speaking. James Hong is marvellously placed as Father Best, Ving Rhames voices Buffalo Belzer, Wendell and Wilde's father, and Angela Bassett plays Sister Heli, one of the nuns at the School for Delinquents that Kat is sent to. All the designs look great, and are given a very organic world to reside in, with the level of detail into each model and environment proving to be perhaps Selleck's finest work. The creative freedom Monkeypaw and Netflix have given the director has allowed us a true insight into the darkly comical reaches of the director's mind, and animation fans will relish opportunities to revisit this film to check out the variety of detail on screen. Sure to sit comfortably on most family October film lists for years to come, Wendland Wilde is an enjoyable, if occasionally shaky, ride that ultimately satisfies. Uh,
0: so that's the reviews, Andy. Um, some good ones in there. What's coming up next week?
1: Uh, at cinemas, there's Living, The Watcher and Call Jane. Three lower interest films, but Living is definitely one which is kind of on my radar. It looks like it's got a strong performance delivered by Bill Nye throughout it. So I'm on board for watching anything with everybody, Bill Nye.
0: Everybody loves Bill Nye.
1: Um, On Now TV and Sky, if you hate yourself, Morbius lands this week. And there's also something called Rabbit Academy, which sounds intriguing just from the name. So I might give that a check. Um, Over on Netflix, if you love yourself, watch The Bad Guys. Animated movie that I could not rave about more last year. Enola Holmes 2 also lands on Netflix this week. Captain Phillips lands on there. And The Takeover, which is the Dutch crime film about a hacker framed for murder, has got some good word of mouth on it. Over on Amazon, My Policeman, the Harry Styles film, which has had a limited cinema release, lands on Amazon Prime this week. And over on Disney Plus, we loved it. See how they run lands on Disney Plus this week. I'm going to revisit that. And we've been waiting for ages for this. What we do in the Shadows season four lands on Disney Plus this week.
0: Come on, I know what I'm doing next week. I know what I'm doing.
1: We were wondering why the BBC went lining it up and why it wasn't showing on there. It's a Disney Plus thing. So
0: I think, guys, there for. Uh, a neat thing for next week.
1: Yeah, I think we'll be fighting over the neat things. We'll just pick an episode each and we'll just talk about one episode each.
0: <laughs> That's us done for a, a, another week. But before we go and, and you know, if you're a regular listener that we do this every week and it's our neat thing, stuff that we've enjoyed as simple as that, be it anything, as long as it's brought us uh, a, a good time. And it's pretty neat. Andy and I are going to fight over this neat because I think, we're going to do a neat thing that we both, uh,
1: we, we're both going to bring to the table the same one. I think so. So I'm going to jump in first and say, wasn't that episode, The Power of the Doctor, of Doctor Who, absolutely magnificent?
0: I had a good time with it. Now, I have a lot of problems with it, a lot of problems, but I walked away from after it had finished and I it, it reminded me of all the things I liked about Doctor Who, which have, which have suffered through the uh, the last four years, and I liked it so much that I went back and I watched it a second time, but it was, a, it was a nice way to say goodbye to Jodie Whittaker, who's brought something absolutely unique, and the thing I keep saying to everybody, Jodie Whittaker plays the Doctor, and every actor plays the Doctor. It doesn't matter really who's in the role, they all play the same character, and that kind of Uh, was shown in this this, uh, finale.
1: Yeah, this finale was a love letter to the whole of Doctor Who since day one. We got some old companions. You had Janet Fielding and Sophie Aldred on screen significantly as Tegan and Ace. And as soon as they popped up early on, I had a big beaming smile on my face. Uh, You know, my daughter, my wife, who have never been big Doctor Who fans until this new incarnations, didn't understand exactly what this kind of, Elements meant to me, and I'm just like, Oh my god, it's Tegan and Ace, and they're looking at me like, Who are they? and like, Oh, this, this, the little throwaway line from Tegan when she's looking at the mini Cyberman and says, Why would you send me this when you know what it means? and that was the reference to Eldrick, and then they yeah. bring that up later on, and I'd got that that was the reference to Eldrick because you know, Eldrick was killed in a Cyberman episode. And I still remember that. And that took me back to when that episode played. And that was the first episode of Doctor Who that played out without any closing music. It was just silence. Oh, right. I didn't know that. It stunned me as a child. Then you got the support group at the end. William Russell as Ian. Yes. Katie Manning as Joe. And Bonnie Langford. I mean, she was never really liked when she was on it. But it was still nice to see Bonnie Langford pop back up as Melanie. It was a lovely touch having like all the old Doctor's companions having a support group
0: yeah i I love that aspect i I love the fan service in this i'm not usually a great fan of of, fan service but what i thought it did it played the honor of of what it's like to be part of of, uh, did you know that that was the 300th story since doctor who began in 1963 and it played into that and it played it it, it, he's never lost sight of what kind of a show it is now it's been an erratic four years of, of Jodie Whittaker's, with some of the worst storytelling I've seen in Doctor Who for many a time. I think showrunner Chris Chibnall has, has tried to do something different, which I didn't mind. He has everything he has a tendency to do. is, is, is at a frenetic pace. Uh, and this was, again, a prime example of, of his sort of kitchen sink um, storytelling. He throws everything in. It's uh, all over the place. He all tries to, to pull it together, often writing himself in, into corners. But the heart of it was Jodie Whittaker, who's just been a phenomenal doctor, and I'm uh, I'm disappointed that she's not had better work uh, in the scripts. But she was she was magnificent in it, and I thought Mandrip Gill was uh, uh, was the heart of the story. What what does it mean to be a companion?
1: Well, that's the title of the episode, "The Power of the Doctor." It was all about the companions because they are the true power of the Doctor.
0: Yeah, um, empathy and sympathy, and what it's like to be left behind, and. You know that's what uh, being a doctor's all about. It's not always the the, the uh, uh, time traveling elements. Uh, it was it was uh, uh, it was a good old ride. It wasn't my favorite episode. It was not one of those. I I think the New Year's Eve special with the Daleks was was Chibnall's best. But there were so many elements in it that I just I just really enjoyed, and it had a great ending, fantastic yes. ending, that. Makes me want to know what's going to happen next, and and they could have gone the the atypical the route, but if you've not seen it, I'm not going to spoil it. I liked the ending so much that you know, again, it was just it was a uh, it was it was fan service, you know. It it dealt with not just the four year run, it dealt with the whole of Doctor Who, and there were some great cameos all tied into this. Doctor Who isn't a reboot; it's a, it's a long running
1: series. We both had the same neat thing this week. We did. Um, And it's because we are big geeks and we're big hoovians. Indeed. And we're we're excited for the future of Doctor Who. Can't wait. Under under Disney and BBC co-ownership.
0: See where it goes. I'll be there. I'll always be there. Even when I'm disappointed, I'll always be there. Yeah.
1: I mean, that's what I'll try. I mean, it's like with football teams. You know, if you support a football team, you stick with them even if they're suffering, even if they've been dropping down divisions, you stick with them because you support them. And that's what fandom is like for things like Doctor Who, for things like Star Wars, for things like Marvel, etc. There will be low points, but there will hopefully be more high points to come.
0: Indeed. That's our neat things for this week. And that's our show for this week. And as ever, thanks for joining us. Couldn't do this alone. Certainly this week, couldn't have done it on my own. I, I would have been, it would just be an hour of dead air with, with, I, th- uh,
1: I thought briefly that I'd end up having to do it on my I, own. <laughs> th- there were
0: times during the recording of this particular episode when I thought you were just going to be talking to yourself with gaps where you've left <laughs> space for me, but we, we've made it to the end. And, uh, Andy, hopefully I'll, I'll see you in the week.
1: Yes. Uh, Fingers crossed. Not got a lot going on this week, except for I have built my new computer now. That's what I'm using today.
0: I, I thought it was disappointing when you called it Hal, and I, I meant to warn you,
1: um, but uh, I'll leave that between you and your computer. It keeps sinking, Daisy Daisy to me. Should I get worried? I'd get
0: very, very worried.
1: <laughs> so I've just got to transfer the rest of my stuff off my old computer over to this new one, and then I'm all set and good for the... Um, Scrapping the old one. Alright. I say scrap it. I say scrapping. I'm donating it to the wife. She can have it.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's never really dead. So no. um cheers. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again next week. And remember, it's a madhouse. It's a madhouse.
1: Not one, but two. For the price of one. Which isn't really very expensive because neither of us get paid for this. so um. <laughs> Just free then. Take your
0: paws off me, you damn dirty ape. All right,
1: it's I will dead. do. I oh. promise. On, <laughs> I won't touch her in that way again. <coughs> I thought it was your special place. <laughs>
0: Where on the ape doll did you touch me? <laughs> I'm Lee Ford. Are yeah, I am. Have we, have we actually started the show now? Oh, we have, yes. Oh, you forgot oh, got to do the theme tune.
1: I forgot to do the theme tune. I need to, oh, right. We need to go back then. I need to go. Dah, 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 <laughs> so
0: and we'll have a quick review on the last episode of Jodie Whitaker's Doctor Who. Oh, that's a neat thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <okay>. You sure?
1: Sure, <laughs> 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 don't want to be clowns. clowns are definitely not what (laughs) you (laughs) think don't show me clowns (laughs) hold on, this
0: week's clown news we're going to be looking at the box office clowns for the last clown (laughs) we're going to be starting with Black Clown, which has been doing very well at the clowns we're going to sorry I thought you were going to sing again then. I was giggling in (laughs) advance.
1: Plant of the Apes, the musical. That's the future. (laughs) That's the one in
0: in The Simpsons, isn't it? (laughs) Yep. Dr. Zeus, Dr. Dr. Zeus. Dr.
1: Zeus, Dr. Zeus, Dr. (laughs) Zeus.